Welcome to A Brief Chat. Today is Thursday. It's the 30th of July, 2020. I'm Jason Crane. You can find this show and all the past episodes at abriefchat.com. You can also now watch A Brief Chat on YouTube by clicking on ABC on YouTube at abriefchat.com. Or if you're already watching it on YouTube by just, you know, not shutting this video off. Let's take a look back at this day in radical history via our friends at the Slingshot Collective. You can get your copy of the day planner at slingshotcollective.org. This is what it looks like inside, by the way. I use mine as kind of a bullet journal. I don't think this is what a bullet journal is. I use mine as kind of a journal. I don't think there's any bullets involved. But anyway, it's just got the little events and that kind of thing. And then it's got all kinds of cool extra sections that are all super radical in nature. Uh, so today, I think at sundown um, is the beginning of Eid al-Adha. So if you are uh, celebrating, I wish the best to you. In 1956, on this day, In God We Trust was made the official motto of the U.S. because we are scared of the commies. And on this day in 2006, at least 28 people were killed, including 16 children, by the Israeli Air Force in the second Kana massacre. All this week, and uh, probably into at least part of next week, we've been looking at this book, Pointers to Insight. Uh, This is a sequential series, so if you haven't listened to the previous ones, you might want to go back and listen to or watch those. Uh, This is The Life of a Zen Monk by Soko Morinaga Roshi, the, the monk in question. So, uh, to the story so far, he has gone off, he's obviously he's Japanese, or I guess it's, maybe it's not obvious, but he is Japanese, he's gone off to fight in World War II, he's come back very conflicted about good versus evil, and also penniless due to some things that happened in his life. Then he goes and he uh, eventually finds a Buddhist teacher, and in the episode from yesterday, he met this teacher, he uh, gained admittance to study with him, and kind of learned his first lesson about, although... He says that, you know, he wasn't able to fully realize it or internalize it um, about how everything is uh, imbued with Buddha nature. So here we are in chapter five, trust, working it out for myself without complaint. In a Zen temple, breakfast of rice gruel is followed by formal tea served in the Roshi's room. This is an abbreviated tea ceremony. After the Roshi has been served, the others also have tea whilst listening to the Roshi's plans for the day and remembering that Roshi is the the teacher or master. When I first came to Daishuin, an old lady also lived there, Miss Okamoto. She was a graduate of the famous Ochanomizu Ladies College and for many years had been involved with women's education. In her 40s, she had become deeply involved with Buddhism and devoted to the Roshi. She gave up her teaching appointment to spend the rest of her life clad in simple working clothes and taking care of the Roshi's personal needs. Just the three of us lived together. So this isn't like a a full monastery where there are tons of monks. He's just studying with this Roshi and people living there are him and this Roshi and this woman. The Roshi used to talk to Miss Okamoto but never said a word to me. One morning, probably taking pity on me, she said, And what do you think, Morinaga? hoping thereby to draw me into the conversation. But before I could reply, the Roshi said, no, no, he's not yet fit to talk in front of people. From the Roshi's standpoint, you had first to know yourself before you were qualified to talk in the company of others. In Zen terms, this knowing yourself is called kensho, which means to have clearly seen into and verified one's true nature. And since I had not done so, I was not to speak. Once again, I was stung to the quick and thought to myself, this damned old fool... But I could not let him see how I felt because I knew he would send me home since no training could take place under a teacher I neither trusted nor respected. So kind of like in the last chapter, 
uh, Soko Morinaga is essentially concealing his feelings so that he doesn't get kicked out because he thinks that this is what he's supposed to be doing. He's just not sold yet on the guy he's doing it with. It was then that I realized that trusting meant trust without a murmur of dissent. I must say yes, yes to everything I was told. Therefore, even being told to do three things at once or to do something I had never done before, I was never, never to say I can't do it or I don't know how to do it. Rather, it was up to me to find out myself how to accomplish whatever I was given to do, taxing my resources and ingenuity to the utmost. The Roshi's first words to me about trusting one's master meant just this working it out for myself without complaint. Before, while my parents were still alive and in good health, I used to complain, I can't do it. I began to realize that what I had thought impossible was not necessarily impossible at all. It just meant I did not have the ability to do it at that time. If you have an ability for, say, 10, then you don't feel 9.9 .9 is impossible. But the moment you are given 10.1 to do, you feel it is impossible. A person who always says immediately, I cannot do it, will only be able to work to 10, and in that case, there is no room for improvement. Never say, I can't do it. Somehow or other, at any cost, you must get done what the teacher tells you to do. And by thus taxing yourself to the utmost, you will exceed 10.1 and 10.2, and an ability to accomplish what you had never imagined yourself capable of will gradually develop. And I think here again, and some of this too, I think, is a difference in the mindset of Japanese Buddhists and Western Buddhists, particularly American Buddhists, where there is much more willingness in Japan generally to subsume yourself to the larger culture or the needs of a company or whatever it might be. Whereas here we tend to rebel more against authority. Although, um, yeah, we carry that out in some weird ways here. But I think generally speaking, you can, you can say that and it applies in this situation. I think that more Western Buddhists in this situation would probably find themselves pushing back against authority. There are many such... Oh, oh sorry. Uh, he says, But what was I to do should the Roshi say kill or die? What does trusting your master mean when faced with such an instruction? First, it is unlikely the master I trusted would make an unethical demand, so there is bound to be a deep meaning contained in his words, which I as yet failed to comprehend. There are many such instances in Zen texts. Quote, if you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha. If you meet the patriarchs, kill the patriarchs, unquote. And also, quote, if you meet your parents, kill your parents, unquote. Trust in a Zen temple means continually trying to gain some insight into what such words really mean. So during the early days as a novice, I did my best to accomplish whatever I was told or was given to do. But by no means did I manage to do everything competently. On my very first day, I was told to wipe the wooden gangways. I duly got down on my hands and knees, cloth in hand, swish left and right. But the gangways in a temple are different from those of ordinary houses. Idiot, how many days do you think you're going to spend doing that? I'll show you how it's done. Then I saw the Roshi on all fours, cloth pressed on the floor with both hands and bottom thrust in the air, speeding along. At that, scales dropped from my eyes. I had known nothing but theorizing, and during my high school days, I often spent the whole night with friends reading books on philosophy and arguing, talk, talk, talk. I now burned with shame because, factually, I could not even do such a simple job as properly cleaning a floor. Well, then fine, I'll put everything I've got into it, I thought. But I did not know how to set about doing that, either. Sometimes people would come to help with work for the day. When I saw someone sweeping the garden, I would rush up and say, I'll do it and take the broom from him. Or seeing someone cleaning the floor, I would try getting the cloth from him. I'll do it, 
and seeing another kindling fire to heat the bath, again I would try to take over his work. In the end, everyone would bark at me, You there! Why don't you stop trying to do the jobs of others and find something to do yourself? But I did not know how to be resourceful and work it out for myself. These days, too, when bright young men from first-rate universities come to my temple to sit zazen, seated meditation, the first task I assign to the newcomers is heating the bath. But the fire has been lit under an, under an empty bathtub so many times that I now query beforehand, what's the first thing you do when you heat a bath? Light the fire, they reply. Jolly well not. Fill it with water, they then reply. Just put in the water, is that what you think you do? Here they fail to understand, for it never occurs to them that the first thing to do is scrub the bathtub. So I explain that first they should clean the tub, then fill it with water, then check the water level, then cover the top of the tub with the wooden lid, and only then kindle the fire underneath. And of course he's describing a traditional Japanese tub. But when I go to check how things are getting on, I find one or two large logs and lots of burnt newspaper. That won't burn, use some kindling. But there isn't any kindling, they reply. Then chop some. I don't know where the hatchet is. Well, why don't you ask someone? Finally, they set about splitting kindling. However, as I half expect, the fire still does not burn properly. Peering inside, I finally have not removed the old ashes, so I ask again what makes a fire burn, and the reply comes back, a chemical combination of matter and oxygen. Where is the oxygen? In the air. Well, if that's the case, why don't you remove these ashes and let some air in? And while you're about it, you better clean the chimney, too. They duly climb onto the roof and clean the chimney, and on their way down, as sure as not, they tread on and break several roof tiles. However, I cannot laugh at these young people, because when I first came to Daishuin, I was just like them. And actually, I hear a lot of myself in that as well. Um, I think it took me a very long time, and that's probably a process that's still continuing, of being able to just figure out problems for myself. And I notice that in my kids sometimes, um, uh, a kind of a, a need for things to be presented right in front of you. And I think that that may might be different for different people. Like, for example, my friend Kevin, when we were young and we're presented with some kind of difficulty, Kevin would often see the way through to the end of the difficulty in a way, first of all, very quickly and in a way that I could not see. Like, he could follow this kind of linear logical progression of how we get from here to there in a way that often stymied me. And as soon as he'd say it, I would think, oh, yeah, that's right. Obviously, of course, we're going to do that. But I, I just couldn't make that leap myself. And I think still today, when it comes to uh, kind of logical, linear solutions to things, that's often difficult for me. Like kind of backwards planning I can do pretty well. And also intuitive leaps about like emotional situations, those kinds of things I can do pretty well. But often when I just need to like get from A to B, but there's an impediment between them, figuring my way around that impediment is not not always easy for me. So we'll continue this uh, on Monday. Uh, tomorrow, of course, will be Poetry Friday. Then Saturday will be the bonus episode. Uh, if you're a member, you can become a member at abriefchat.com, and that is an enormous help. And I think that's it. I love you. A better world is possible, but we do have a lot of work to do. Three, two, one.